Hello, everyone. I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction. Today I'm speaking with Carol Strickland about The Eagle and the Swan, a novel set in 6th century Byzantium, then still very much self-defined as the surviving eastern portion of the Roman Empire. Strickland's novel follows Empress Theodora from her early days as a circus performer, actress, and courtesan through her marriage to Emperor Justinian I, author of the Codex Justinianus that still forms the basis of much Western law, a man who for a while looked capable of outsmarting the Huns, Goths, and Vandals, and restoring Rome in all its ancient glory. It's a compelling tale. The story is told from the viewpoint of Fabianus, Theodora's childhood friend, now a monk charged with producing a true secret history of emperor and empress to counteract the secret history of Procopius, Justinian's court historian. The novel opens as Fabianus defines his task. It's a stronger pull than the tide, but beauty's only part of it. Theodora. The name conjures blazing eyes, lithe limbs, forever in motion, a quicksilver mind, dark hair that rolls and waves like the sea. And when she smiles, it's like coming from the inky dark of a cave to all the colors of dawn. Light floods in like a crystal cloud. But how to paint a truthful portrait when my subject's a born actress, much given to histrionics? She once told me the secret of a great performance is to use the stage to let something inside you out, something that burns to escape. My life, she said, is not something that happens to me. It's what I cause to happen. She spoke in a whisper. I had to lean close to hear. I inhaled a drifting wave from her perfumed hair, our faces so close I could feel the heat from her brow and smell her breath, sweet like pears. So here's her story. A tale of the bear-keeper's daughter and the empire. What happened to her, and what happened because of her? I should mention that for the first time on New Books in Historical Fiction, we are featuring a novel that is only available as a digital book. The full text is already on sale in various places, and the publisher plans to come out with an enhanced edition soon. You can search your favorite sites or check the author's and publisher's websites. You'll find links on the New Books in Historical Fiction page and at the end of this podcast. And now, please join me in welcoming Carol Strickland. Hi, Carol. Hi, Carolyn. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for agreeing to talk to us today. My pleasure. I'd like to start, as I always do, by asking you to tell us about yourself. Um, you have a really interesting background, so tell us what you were doing before you started The Eagle and the Swan. Ah, good. Okay. Well, I love languages. I love books. And um, I've always, as soon as I could read, I would hole up in my room and lose myself in fiction. But gradually, you know, as you get older and you know that there's more than the plot, you become aware you're not losing yourself. You're finding yourself. And so that's what I was uh, really interested in, exploring and discovery through books and learning new things always. So in high school, that was quite formative when I got to the American Lit um, uh, junior year, because I love those guys, Melville and Twain and Hawthorne and Emily Dickinson, Thoreau, Emerson, all that. I'm totally a 19th century American lit geek. So I majored in English in college and then went on to graduate school. That just seemed like the natural progression, where I got a PhD in the American novel. Then after school, I took the usual course. I was a teacher in college and always teaching literature, analyzing it as well as teaching writing. And the wonderful thing about an academic career is every seven years you get to take a sabbatical and go anywhere you want and do anything you want. So we went to Switzerland, and that was the first time I wasn't teaching. So I began to write. I joined a writer's group and started publishing short stories and personal essays. And there were other I was publishing in the European Wall Street Journal these kind of brief articles on how alien <laughs> Europe and Switzerland was and just cultural reflections. So when I got back to the U.S., um, I used that European uh, experience and realized that I could not really keep their own teaching and give up writing. I had to give up the teaching. So I became a freelance writer and took my clips from the Wall Street Journal to the New York Times and there, there was a wonderful man who was the editor of the Long Island section of the Times. And since I lived in Long Island, there was all this wonderful stuff going on out in the Hamptons, East End, with arts. And he said, okay, this is your beat. So I became the stringer for them and started writing about the art, the architecture, the actors, the composers, everything in the cultural scene out there. Then my agent said, okay, so you write about art. Let's do a book on the history of art. 
but he felt there was a need for a book that was a totally basic, reader-friendly introduction to the history of art. That, and since I had not specialized in that, that I could do it because I wasn't going to be writing all this technical, jargon-laden, kind of textbooky stuff. And luckily for me, that book has found its audience. It's called an Annotated Mona Lisa, a Crash Course in History of Art. And uh, it still sells well, and readers still seem to feel it's, it's very helpful to them just to get started. So then from that, I became a contributing um, kind of cultural critic and feature writer for the Christian Science Monitor newspaper and now for Art in America magazine. And so to get to novel writing, it's not um, a logical progression, really, because um, my journalism was getting more literary. I was, I was writing more narratively and using a lot of dialogue and a lot of details of setting and sensory information, things like that, to set the scene. So one day I just decided, let's go for it. In my spare time, I couldn't ever just stop and do it full time, but I, I just started to, to write a novel. That's fascinating. And you've also done documentaries and films for cable yeah, television, well, right? On the way. Oh. <laughs> that was that was getting to be more visual to do yeah, the documentaries and things like that and screenplays, yeah. Fascinating. So why of all the places that you might write a novel, why sixth century Byzantium? Well, I knew about Theodora because she is this visual icon who is um, uh, the star of one of the masterpieces of Byzantine art, which is the uh, mosaics in the Cathedral of um, San Vitale in Italy, in uh, Ravenna. And so I knew her, you know, as a face, but nothing about her background. And then when I wrote a book on the history of architecture, one of the great monuments of antiquity is the Hagia Sophia Cathedral in Istanbul. And Justinian, her husband, the emperor, built that in just five years, which is unbelievable since cathedrals take centuries to build. But he didn't dilly-dally. He was not ever one to um, waste time. So um, this was his baby, his legacy. He designed and conceived and constructed it. And uh, as I read about him and what a workaholic he was, he you know started as a swineherd in the Balkans and rose to be the pinnacle of power. Then I read about her, his wife, Theodora, and learned she, her background was even more colorful than his because she'd started as this dancer in the circus and... Um, prostitute, basically, and uh, even though it was the most irrational thing in the world, beyond common sense, he married her. So I just felt that um, that was such a colorful couple, their backgrounds, that it was a shame that modern readers don't seem to know about them. And as I began to research it, I found that I think the reason they are, you know, defamed almost is because uh, their court historian Procopius hated them. And he was a man of infinite malice and, and vile, apparently, because everything he writes is just ghastly about them. They're, you know, he depicts them as degenerate and corrupt, just pours on the dirt so much, and you know it's got to be one-sided. So I wanted to tell the other side of her story, because I didn't think it was fair that he got to define her for the ages. She really was a significant figure historically. So giving her her voice was my main mission, I would say. So what she decided to do was to create, in effect, a counter-history to Procopius, right? To exactly, yes. And that's why I did choose um, another scribe just like Procopius to tell the story, because it would be definitely the other version of the secret history. Now, there's a huge amount of history in your book, a lot of detail, uh, really fascinating stuff, which even I didn't know, even though I had taken a course in Byzantine history long ago, and I specialize in medieval Russia. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm guessing you must have done quite a bit of research. Uh, what what did, did you find? I did. Well, I have three whole bookshelves full of the histories of the era by modern writers and primary sources. And that took me a couple of years to get through all that. Uh, but, you know, every now and then something would pop off the page, some anecdote that really made it come alive. But mostly it's just these bare facts, you know, who did what when. So to get to the characters' inner selves, their personalities, and make them you know, seem like living human beings, that was the, both the challenge and the joy of what I had to do. And yeah. with um, fiction, of course, you don't just tell what the character is like. You have to use gesture and dialogue, action, and all the details of setting that somehow reflect what they're thinking or feeling. So that was all the fun part, was being able to imagine and, and fill in all the gaps, all the juicy stuff that the standard histories leave out. And I think that even though all of this happened 1,500 years ago, human nature has not changed fundamentally. 
So I did want them to speak to us conversationally so that we could learn from them about what was still true about their condition and ours. Of course, I had to use kind of BBC kind of English and a lot of Latin-made stuff, uh, no modern slang at all, but I didn't want it to be kind of like a sword and sandal, you know, costume drama that you'd see in a gladiator movie. I wanted it to be to to make them seem like people with all their quirks and flaws and strengths and uh, show us what they lived for, what they cared about, you know, what made them laugh and love and cry and all that stuff, and above all, what we could learn from them today. So there were no liberties I could take in the plot. That was given the facts. Um, no wiggle room whatsoever. But, you know, fleshing out the characters, that was where, you know, that's where the imagination comes in, and, and I hope that's where it succeeds. Yeah, you did a great job. I mean, they're very distinct personalities. Let's let's talk about the main characters one uh, by one because there's a, an enormous cast of historical yeah. characters that you also had to work with, which is really, in some ways, I'm sure it's great, but in other ways, it's like, my goodness, you know, what are you going to do with all these folk to get them on the page without uh, making right. it? You know, that's a lot to work with. Um, but I think we really need to begin with Theodora because even though Fabianus, whom we'll get to soon, uh, is the one telling the story. It's it's mostly a story about her and Justinian. It's the ideas that it's they are telling their recollections to Fabianus because they suspect Procopius of uh, how should I put this cooking the books in terms of characters. Exactly. <laughs> so you mentioned that she was a, a dancer in the circus. I think you mentioned to me that there was a passage that you wanted to read about her um, history as a child. But tell us more about her. She's a barkeeper's daughter, as we find out. From oh, yes. Yes, she was a firecracker. There's no doubt about that. <laughs> Person of quite relentless ambition and perfectionist, too. And I think it was her tough background. She was an abused child in today's terms. And that's what gave her the guts to persevere and do whatever was necessary at the time. Because of her birth, you know, lowly in the circus, those were the scum of the earth back then. She was condemned, really, to be uh, first an actress, which meant also a prostitute. But if that was what she had to be, she was going to be the most inventive, most proficient hooker that ever existed. Uh, did love the empire once she escaped from that life and escaped through her own um, gumption and guts, really. Robert E. Lee said something about it. To be a great commander, a general has to love his army, but at the same time be willing to destroy it, what he loves the most. And I think she had that that drive, that will to win at all costs, that she loved Justinian, she loved the people of Constantinople and the whole empire. But if she had to wrestle it to the ground in order to save it, she was not going to shift from that. She was just driven, never going to quit. As I listen to you talking, I think we should clarify that when we say circus, we're not talking about Barnum and Bailey. We're talking about no. a, a Roman-style yeah. circus. So yeah, tell, so tell us what... The, the chariot races happened in the Hippodrome, right? Mm-hmm. So um, Theodora starts as a bearkeeper's daughter, and her father dies. And tell us what happens to her next. Okay, so she's five years old when her father dies, and her sister's seven, her little sister three, and the mother is totally desperate. Her mother's Cressida, and uh, the family has, has no income because the father has no job. So the only thing possible was to send the little children into in the middle of the hippodrome, into the arena, to beg the crowd's mercy to give them a, a, a new job, because at this point the mother had remarried, and if the stepfather could be the bearkeeper, they could survive. So this is what I would like to, to read. Yes, please, go ahead. Okay. Cressida rehearsed her girls. So much depended on it. She showed them how to feign the most piteous looks, how to stretch out their hands and plead for compassion. She dressed them in borrowed finery with circlets of pink roses on their heads and garlands of spring flowers. When 60,000 people assembled for the games, she pushed the frightened little girls into the center of the arena. The sand beneath their feet, bare feet was burning hot. They jiggled about on tiptoe until they dug their toes down to a cool layer. The endless tiers of heads encircling the oval stadium seemed to stretch to infinity. The roar of voices on all sides was deafening. Then the crowd noticed three tiny figures holding hands, fidgeting from foot to foot. A hush fell. The mandator bellowed. These three girls, daughters of their late bearkeeper, Cassius, begged their fellow greens to allow their stepfather to serve in their father's position. 
the little girls turned, casting doleful looks on all sides, holding out their hands to the masses. All eyes were trained on the tiny girls, bare specks of color in the center of the vast arena. Comito and Anastasia were dumb with fright, their eyes big and watery. Anastasia thrust her thumb firmly in her mouth, and Comito clasped her hands together as if in prayer. Theodora, as all eyes bored into her, swelled with joy. What fun to be the focus of all eyes. Surely these men looking at her would be kind. She'd heard applause so often for circus dancers. Now it was her turn. She began to pirouette and skip in a dainty dance, solemnly sure of her grace. Hadn't her father clapped when she did these steps for him? Hadn't she thought their bear this routine? Her steps were so light, she felt she was dancing on air. Yips of approval sounded from the stands. Fingers pointed, shouts of bravo, and claps wafted down to her. With total confidence, Theodora improvised new movements. She tried steps she'd seen grown-up dancers use, bumping and grinding her tiny belly, her hands on her hips, and a parody of seduction. Whistles and cheers burst out. Yes, more, more. She thrust out her pelvis and revolved her hips. Theodora twirled like a tiny tornado, throwing out her arms. Me, they're looking at me. Then an awful sound began. First a holler, then a jeer, growing like a thundercloud. Hoots, raucous laughter, obscene jibes, rained on Theodora's ears like stinging hail. It sounded as if all the bears, lions, and cheetahs in cages under the hippodrome were bellowing at once. Theodora clapped her hands over her ears. The crowd howled even more. Comito and Anastasia looked confused. Mother's rehearsals hadn't covered what to do if rejected. Theodora could stand it no longer. She ran from the arena, dropping her garland, slipping and falling on the sand, picking herself up to run again. Her dress-up tunic was splotched with horse manure. Thorns from the capital of roses cut her forehead. She wiped away a smear of blood. And then it ends that chapter with their life in the circus would continue, but Theodora's innocence was at an end. Yes, that that catches her character, I think, very clearly. And and she remembers this as the most humiliating day of her life. Yeah, it was really a transformative uh, experience for her, apparently. Is that a historical incident? Yes, Prokopius does tell about that one for sure. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, tell us about the greens and the blues, because that's an important background part of the story. Oh, true. Yes. Well, they had these factions back then, and it started as racing teams or, or as fans, I guess, of the teams. And the, the greens uh, wanted all their charioteers to win, and the blues were just as passionate about the their charioteers. And, and this was such a source. I mean, it was like the soccer crazies today who will just trample people and uh, get their life savings and do everything in order. They were truly hooligans, I think. And uh, just, it, it really split the whole empire into partisans of one faction or the other. But this incident then becomes crucially important because Theodora has been a member of the Greens. Right, until this episode when it was the Blues who gave her her stepfather the new job and she transferred her loyalties, yeah. So when she then becomes Empress, um, the Greens, although the Greens don't realize it when they're rejecting her as a tiny child, but in fa- effect they've sealed their political fate by, by doing Definitely. this. Yeah, because then Justinian and Theodore were quite prejudiced against them and their favoritism had unfortunate consequences. So tell us what happens to Theodora after this. You mentioned she becomes an actress and a Protestant. Uh, uh, Protestant. <laughs> Anything but a Protestant. A prostitute. Yeah. <laughs> and a kind of erotic dancer, really. Um, yes. She was famous for her interpretation of Leda and the Swan myth and, uh, with the trained goose. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, she felt she had to escape from that life. And at that time, there was no way, really, a prostitute could renounce her, her past and uh, become, you know, born again. So the only way was to go away, and she became a concubine of, of the governor of the province of Libya and went to northern Africa with him, then was kicked out pretty much by because she was probably too uppity for him, and went to Alexandria, Egypt, um, working her way back to Constantinople. And in Alexandria, that was the hotbed of uh, a sect of, uh, of the faith back then, which was called, well, you don't need to know what it's called, but anyway, <laughs> she uh, was converted and became um, 
penitent, actually. I, I do feel that her repentance was real and that she, she did become um, a very staunch, card-carrying member of this, this branch of uh, Christianity, which was the un- unorthodox branch at the time. Well, and actually, I think, that's, I think that's actually quite interesting because it is another source of conflict in the empire. And we tend to think of Byzantium by the 6th century or Christianity by the 6th century as being kind of settled. But in fact, they're still engaged in a major fight over the nature oh, of yeah. Christ, right? That's that's what this basic, whether Christ is entirely divine or whether he's both divine and human. Right. This was year 518 when it starts, and that's only 200 years after Christianity changed from being the persecuted underground sect where everybody had to be a martyr to believe to the official religion, and so they were definitely still working out all the tenets of the faith at this time, and and, and your salvation depended on the right belief, and so whether, you know, you thought Christ was wholly divine or human and divine, that was, was hotly debated, and in the East they felt one way, and in the Latin West there wasn't a totally other belief, and Justinian was the uh, representative of God on earth. There was no separation of church and state. And he felt it was incumbent upon him to save his subject souls, even if it meant torturing them and um, banishing them, even executing them. He had to do it to make sure they would come around to profess the Orthodox belief. Well, yes. So let's move towards talking about Justinian. But the other part that I got from your book is that there is also a political element to this religious discussion, uh, again, because there's no separation between church and state, but Justinian has taken over the throne from somebody who was actually in favor of the Eastern position, that Christ was wholly divine. Um, And he changes his allegiance. It's implied, at least in the novel, that he does it in part because he has an ambition to reunite the Roman Empire, which has been split with the barbarian invasions um, and the fall of Rome in 476 CE. So um, tell us, I was quite fascinated by the Justinian in your book, uh, because I should mention that the book covers primarily the first part of his reign with Theodora and what came before that. So the Justinian that you get in the the paragraph description in your Western Civ class is, you know, the lawgiver who reunited Rome or came very close to putting the empire back together. And he comes across uh, with the builder of Hagia Sophia. And he's this very, um, he's almost like a Roman statue. You know, he has no flaws. (laughs) And your Justinian is, is very different. Tell us about him. He would love it, you know, the, the modern portrayal of him as the Roman statue, because he desperately wanted to be called Justinian the Great. And he was great in many ways, you know, as you say, builder of cathedrals, monasteries, a pious scholar, tireless worker. He slept only about three hours a night. He was working so hard and law reformer, all this, and the reconqueror of the lost territories of the Roman Empire. But I think, ironically, it was his his lofty ambitions for the empire that ultimately corroded him, because um, um, he just felt that he had to do what he had to do to save everybody and to reunite. He said, one leader, one faith, and um, one empire. And so they all had to believe the same thing. So he could not allow any dissension. He could not accept diversity or uh, tolerance of any uh, uh, opinions which didn't jive with, with his. And then, of course, the other fault was that he had to tax people to death because he was determined to mount these military campaigns to to win back the Roman Empire. And coming from the peasant class, he had to work twice as hard, or 50 times as hard, really, as anybody else, or especially than aristocrats. But together, Theodore, who was his co-ruler in the true sense, uh, although not officially, they liberalized the law and they made all these great uh, advances for the rights of women and children. So they do deserve an honored place in history. And it's it's too bad that he fell into disrepute because of uh, favoritism and intolerance and his corrupt officials. So I would call him just any of the semi-great. <laughs> that sounds good. He wouldn't like that, I'm sure. But, no. <laughs> <laughs> but he and uh, Theodora actually disagree over this religious issue, although they agree about the blues versus the greens, for example. Right, yeah. yeah. yeah so she took the part of the uh, Eastern Empire, and he took the part of the Latin Orthodox West. And uh, people said that they did it just on purpose so that everybody would feel they had a voice. But um, I think it was a genuine source of uh, of controversy between them. and. 
after, you know, afterwards, um, not in this book, but he did moderate and try to find some compromise. Yes, you can see the point of view of the aristocrats in power, though, although it probably isn't very uh, fair from, uh, for them to be so dismissive of Justinian and Theodora. But, you know, there, there are these grand aristocrats. I don't know offhand how many generations the previous emperor Anastasius uh, was actually in power because it seemed to me when I was studying Byzantine history that each dynasty only lasted about 40 years before the next one came along. But the, the people who are... Um, who have been in power under Anastasius are suddenly looking at uh, the first ruler to come in who is lower class is actually Justinian's uncle, Justin. Yes. So Justin uh, truly still was a peasant. He could not read. He was illiterate. And he had been uh, a pretty good general and uh, was awarded to, uh, as a kind of a sinecure for his pension to be the commander of the palace guards which was mostly an honorary position. The palace guards never had to fight. And uh, so he was like 67 years old when the previous emperor died, who had come from the aristocratic class. And Justin was, as I said, a peasant. And uh, he never, ever would have imagined that he could be emperor. I don't think he had it in him to have that ambition. But Justinian, who was one of his acolytes in the palace guard, realized that this was their opportunity and that they needed someone the army could support. And since his uncle Justin had been a general, the army would be kindly disposed to him as emperor. So Justinian um, uh, gave a bribe, basically, to all the soldiers and um, got them to support Justin. And, and through his all chicanery and machinations, he was able to engineer his uncle's rise to become the emperor. But then, of course, you have the problem, okay, this guy's on the throne, but he can't read a single thing of all the, the you know, it was truly Byzantine in terms of the uh, complexity of the empire. He had so many documents to read and sign and initial every day. So Justinian became the, the power behind the throne and, and uh, really ruled from 518, even though his, his father, his uncle who adopted him, didn't die until 527. Uh, yes, and the Byzantine Empire is still huge. I mean, eventually it becomes no more than the city of Constantinople, but at this point in time it covers, let's see, all of the Middle East and yeah. large parts of North Africa, right? That's right, and, and the Balkans, you know, up to the Danube. So it was, yeah. And uh, the, the state Italy was at that time under the Ostrogoths, but uh, it was kind of a, um, not, not puppet state exactly, but they were so close ties there, and that's why they wanted to uh, get the Pope, who still lived in Rome, to reconcile with the Eastern Church. So at some point, Justinian meets Theodora. Uh, he actually meets her at the beginning of the book, but when she's still an erotic dancer. But he, at that point, he's not particularly interested in her. But at, after her conversion, he meets her in Constantinople. And mm -hmm. by then, he is not yet emperor, right? He's still, he's right. still emperor in training. He's, he's doing all the work, but he doesn't have the title. Exactly. And uh, it does seem to have been a real love match. Uh, even Procopius, who was so, you know, lascivious and portraying them as degenerate and depraved, he never, ever said a word about Theodora ever being unfaithful to Justinian. So, and he said a lot about her friend Antonina being unfaithful to General Belisarius. So he had it in him to tell all that dirt if it had happened, but he didn't. And so I do think that their relationship was based on, on mutual affection and respect and that they, they truly complemented each other. That's interesting. Um, I'm interested in what drew Justinian to Theodora in the first place. When he meets her, she's, she's given up her prior life completely and she's living by spinning wool in a relatively small apartment. She has a little girl who is at least indicated in the sources, uh, called Errata, which is interesting because she's <laughs> <That was> really <laughs> Theodora's mistake, I suppose. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's your name for her, right? She doesn't, we yep. don't have a name for her, but it was no. inspired. Um, so what is it that first appeals to him? Is it just that she's beautiful? Well, uh, she was uh, recommended to him by a, a, a circus dancer in uh, Antioch, Macedonia, who really existed, and she had functioned as a spy for Justinian. She would report to him anything in the, that part of the empire in which she felt that was a threat to his reign. And so Macedonia 
sent word to Justinian, look up Theodora, she's got a message for you. And um, then when Theodora met Justinian, she proceeded to unload on him all the things that she had seen in her travels on the way back to Constantinople from Libya, everything she felt was wrong with the way the empire was was working, and especially the need for tolerance of the the creed that she had come to accept in, in Alexandria. And so I do think it was there in intellectual discussions as well as, of course, her considerable sex appeal that uh, probably drew her to him, that she would tell him honestly what um, no one else dared to tell him. And then I would imagine she rather surprises him by playing hard to get, given her Right, past. right. She was determined. She wasn't going to go the concubine route again. That was, had been disastrous the first time around, and so she set her sights on being empress even though it was totally outlandish in terms of uh, any precedent at the time. In fact, they had to change the laws, from what I remember. He did, yeah. He had to first make her a patrician so that she could be accepted in the, the palace circles, and then actually had to get his uncle to pass a law that said a reformed actress who repents of her prior sinful ways can uh, make an, uh, a marriage with the gentleman who's in the, uh, the aristocratic class. So that really opened up a lot of um, social mobility for Theodore's friends in the, in the circus and the acting profession, too. Yes, a, a, a boon. <laughs> but yeah. even with that, uh, Justinian's aunt did not accept her, even though Justinian's yeah. aunt had no more social class in I, terms of background. had been a slave and a concubine herself before she became empress, just by virtue of Justinian's uh, tricks to get the uncle to the throne. And uh, so she was horrified at the idea of such a, um, a sinner in her palace and just would not accept the idea. She was always pushing these uh, well-dowried uh, virgins at Justinian to try to make a match with one of them. That would lend luster to what she thought of as their dynasty. Ah, uh, well, no, no end to ambition. Um, I remembered the thing I was going to talk about earlier, which was that Theodora also opposed Justinian to some extent on his taxation policies. Yes, she certainly did. She detested the main tax collector who was uh, John of Cappadocia. And, um, you know, I do paint him as a villain, but I didn't use, you know, one-third of the stuff that's out there against him. I mean, he truly was the most venal, corrupt, outrageously disgusting official you can imagine him. But he was completely efficient at extracting every, you know, ounce of wealth from the upper class. He could force his victims to pay up by torturing them, and he had no compunctions about doing so. So he was a genius at extorting cash, and that's what Justinian needed to, uh, you know, to fuel his ambitions and to win back the, the Roman Empire. So he tolerated him while uh, Theodore was always plotting to get just uh, John of Cappadocia out of their lives and out of the empire. Yeah, so... Um, John of Cappadocia is one of the... the people that you talk about in reference to Justinian, he's one of the major characters and he and Theodora get along like cats and dogs. Yeah, <laughs> they <really>. hate each <laughs> other. Um, and it's my impression that Procopius, although he's kind of serving all sides at this point, he's also a character in the novel, but I don't get the impression that he likes John much either. I mean, he, he, I'm assuming his history is part of the source material on John. Right, yes, uh, he was quite, um, I guess Procopius came from the uh, aristocratic class, too, from Caesarea and pa- Palestine, and so he definitely identified with uh, the, um, the that class, the senatorial class, who did not want to give any taxes <laughs> away. So he hated John for that reason, as well as for, he was a pagan, you know, I don't know how he existed as a pagan, because they were, you know, ruthlessly rooted out and banished or, or killed, but, but everybody knew that John would still worship the old gods, and they didn't care. Hardly just any, and turned a blind eye on it. Well, I guess he needed the money. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, money talks, even back then. <laughs> Um, so tell us a little bit about Fabianus, who is the uh, narrator of your story. Ah, uh, yes. So he I, was a total invention. I had to have somebody as the mouthpiece to tell Theodora's side of the story, which was, <clears throat> as we said, intended to counteract the lies of Procopius. And he was fun to write. Uh, he was a young man with a soft spot for Theodora, an artistic bent who was a, a manuscript illuminator, and when she discovered him working in the scriptorium, 
And he was just as caught up as she was in all these disputes over the theology of the time and the revolutionary currents that were seething through society back then. So I did enjoy imagining what his character and reactions and what his literary style would be like. And this was the only place I could really let myself go. And um, I, I tried to make him, you know, show his devotion to Theodora, but still that he took his mission seriously to tell the truth, even though if it was going to be unflattering in, in many cases. And he is also on the um, the Easter side, the monophysite side of this yeah. religious debate. Right. So I, I depicted him as having been uh, her friend in the circus. He was a couple of years younger, and she befriended him, and he was an orphan. She took care of him, and they juggled and you know tried to earn coins on the street together. But then when she was a courtesan, he was becoming the uh, victim of pedophiles, and so she saved him. She got him out of here by getting a, um, a monk to take him off to a monastery. This was one of the few ways that he could have been saved at that point. So he goes to a monastery, and then um, he is he runs away for a while because the the dispute is really heating up in Constantinople, and there's a man, a bishop named Severus in Syria, I believe. Right when the crackdown comes on the non-believers of the Orthodox faith, then he's at at risk too. So he's got to run away for a while and discovers this uh, manuscript that that he's translating. And that's, that's fiction. I mean, there is such a thing as Sinai Codex, but I, I give it a real feminist bent and then try to, to, as part of the background of where Theodora gets her grit from, where she feels like she's got to show that women's opinions matter, that they should be respected and valued. Yes, tell us about the manuscript. What does it contain? Well, it, it's about some of the early saints in the, in the uh, Catholic Church right after the death of Christ and has one in particular who is known uh, historically as Thecla and uh, her martyrdom and her devotion to um, spread the early word of, of Christianity, even though it, you know the, the disciples were men, but she is considered possibly a female disciple. And um, so this was a great revelation to Theodore to feel that, that women did not have to always submit to men, that their voices could be heard, that they should be, in fact. Yes. Um, I, it's interesting, actually. I mean, it, it was very believable to me that they would discover these codices. I, I don't know how many once existed in the Sinai Desert and places like that that have now been lost, but we have been discovering um, codices in the last 15, 20, even 50 years that show a very different picture of the early church. That's true. Yeah, more and more is coming out. And uh, for, for Theodora, uh, you know, she felt that Eve got a bad rap. <laughs> Everything was, you know, the whole um, fall from Eden and banishment from the garden, etc., was because of her original sin. But but Theodora felt that, okay, she just wanted to know. She wanted knowledge. <laughs> She's curious. What's so bad about that? <laughs> Adam it's could have said that. No. To, to face the foe, not to always be sequestered in some little garden of innocence that you had to go out there and, and fight and, and know your enemy in order to really triumph over it. Yes, um, Theodora is also involved with this bishop, uh, Severus, and I mean this purely in a spiritual sense, <laughs> given her past. Mm-hmm. Um, he's one of the figures that she fights to protect, despite Justinian's opposition. Yes, and and he was a, a, a character who's still revered in the Eastern Orthodox Church because he was such an orator. He was very gifted in uh, teaching, and then I did end up just dying in the desert because he was being banished and not uh, allowed to speak. In fact, Justinian wanted to cut out his tongue. Oh, dear. Yeah. Um, it was a time of great cruelty back then. Yes, yes. And, of course, John commits all kinds of hideous deeds against various people in order to get uh, to extract money from them. Oh, yeah. Um, but also there's... Uh, I don't know if you how far into the story you want to go, but there's a lot of unrest and a lot of um, social unhappiness, public unhappiness with many of Justinian's policies, which are yeah. not... not... Not only did the, the, he tax all of his citizens to death, but then the other thing was that he decided at the behest of John to uh, eliminate all kinds of public services that the empire had been providing, like upkeep of the roads and the, you know, the posts and things like that. 
And so um, it got to the point where the farmers on whom the city of Constantinople depended really felt they couldn't make a living anymore. That so all the peasants came from the rural areas to the city because they they were looking for any source of uh, of employment. And uh, this rabble, you know, very unhappy, and and uh, it's a faction disputes too, and the theological disputes, and all of these just built up until there was this revolution against Justinian. Yes, and he doesn't, you know, he does not consider that he's uh, operating in a democracy. So his reaction to all of this is to kill anyone who opposes him or torture anyone who opposes him, pretty much. Yeah, it's very paternalistic. I know best, <laughs> so just uh, submit. So, in what sense are you presenting a different picture from Procopius? I mean, obviously you're not presenting them as moral degenerates, but what is it that you see as being the part of the story that really hasn't been told? Well, I guess um, I I think that the the things that were happening then 1,500 years ago in terms of uh, the protests and um, the lack of acceptance of diversity, things like that, that's, that's still with us today. If you think about the Arab Spring and the recent protests in Turkey last summer, all that seems pretty relevant. So it's not that I'm trying to contemporize it, really, but just want to, you know, Theodora believed, and she advocated for tolerance and acceptance, and, and Justinian believed that advancement should be based on merit. All of his appointees were not from the aristocratic class. They were just people he discovered, like Turbonian, who was this genius at reforming the law. And um, so that that was kind of a, a proto-democratic uh, ideal, and plus her uh, advocacy of women's rights and children. Children were not going to be um, abandoned anymore if their parents didn't want them. And uh, concubines who were cast off would have the same rights as legal wives and to dowries and things like that. So she really pushed for the idea that women could make a contribution and had great potential and that they should be valued. And she liberated all the prostitutes, too. And uh, um, Procopius was pretty dismissive of that. He said, yeah, she liberated them, put them in this convent, but then they, they just jumped off into the Bosporus, off the cliff, because they were so bored. But we don't know if that's true. Um, in fact, let's talk a little bit about Procopius. What do you know about him? Uh, you've read his history, obviously. What, what kind of picture of him emerges? He must have been very two-faced, because he wrote, oh, I don't know how many I'm looking right now on my bookshelf, uh, six or seven volumes that are praiseworthy of Justinian and the general Belisarius. He became Belisarius's uh, secretary and went to war and witnessed firsthand all the uh, the triumphs militarily. That because Belisarius was really brilliant as a general, and then he wrote about Justinian's building program and everything is totally laudatory with that. I mean, you'd think Justinian walked on water, basically. And so all these things that were the official uh, history he was publishing show Justinian and Theodore. I mean, he admits she was beautiful and vivacious and all this, um, show them as uh, exemplary human beings and leaders. But then the fact that he was writing the secret history with all this venom um, under the table just makes you kind of think of him as a hypocrite, I guess. And we don't know why, why he turned against them. Uh, something must have happened. Maybe he felt that he was underappreciated or something. Yeah, it's curious. It's not curious that he wrote an incredibly laudatory public history. I mean, that's pretty much par for the course in the 6th century. But it is curious that his secret history was the flip side of that. You know, that he didn't, he either wasn't capable or didn't think it necessary to tell a balanced history. Right. I, I guess it was just burning up inside him. It was just something he had to ventilate. <laughs> and it must have been therapeutic for him to get it out. I guess. <laughs> so Fabianus's history is also a secret history. It's, I mean, obviously, that's partly a, a gimmick because it's, it explains why the novel has just come to, to come to light after all this time, so to speak. But it is interesting that... that um, the, the setup interested in me, the idea that to counteract one secret history, you would have a second secret history. Right, and, and in terms of strategy for the fictional aspects, to have someone to whom 
others would confess their stories too was um, a way that he would be conversant with everything that was going on with all sides of the, the struggles. Now, there are moments in the book where someone is actively speaking to Fabianus, Theodora, or Justinian, or so on, and then there are other scenes that where he's not present, and yet he's recording what happened. I'm assuming that these are also somebody's recollections that he's writing down. Is that right. Things yeah. that have confided to him, or people who want to get their viewpoint heard in his official history. And he's kind of coalescing the views of different people. He, at some point, he actually goes around the courts soliciting mm-hmm. memories from other people. Right, because since he was prejudiced in her favor, uh, it doesn't seem like it would have come from him directly, so he had to, to quote these people who were opposed to the, the upstarts uh, in the court. So that was kind of fun, to show the cattiness of these yeah. other women <laughs> who were constantly uh, denigrating Theodora for her style and her ostentation or whatever. Right. Um, have, are there characters that are particular favorites of yours that we haven't mentioned? Um, let's see. Well, I like Pompey a lot. Um, and his brother, I didn't know about his brother, who was a general who never won a battle. And uh, constantly he, he had to be bailed out because he's always being taken hostage. But uh, he was one of the um, nephews of late emperor. But the other nephew, Pompey, uh, he was probably a good general, too, and a, a senator and a family man. But, you know, I had to differentiate, and that's a, the struggle that you have to do with, you know, humanizing these characters. And their names are also similar. It's really a problem. So to give them a distinct style and behavior and appearance and voice was uh, the, the problem. And so for Pompey, I made him this aspiring thespian who's always orating and quoting from the classics and very much over the top as a pedantic figure. But he was fun. I have to say that Antonino was one of my favorite characters. Ah, uh, yes, and uh, there's so much real stuff on her in The Secret History, too, as well as uh, the, the objective historians. <laughs> so we, tell us a little bit about her, because we, uh, we have a few minutes set. Yes, well, she was Theodore's best friend and functioned kind of as a spy for her. And talk about lusty. I mean, I don't think anything Procopio says about her is, is untrue. She... Um, had an affair with a, a young man whom she made her stepson. And when she would go on, on uh, military campaigns with her husband, Belisari, she would take the stepson along and just dally with him to her heart's content. And uh, Belisarius um, pretended he didn't know because he was just totally besotted with her. Uh, so she she was quite a, um engaging character, very colorful and uh, useful for Theodora as a friend, somebody to bounce off ideas and to somehow ground her, I think, in reality, too. And she never thought that Theodora could possibly aspire to become empress. She just thought that was lunacy, as did Theodora's sister and her friends. But Theodora persisted. She was not going to give up with anything less than the the, the absolute top. It's a rather interesting insight into Theodora that she remains friends with Antonina, even after she herself has completely rejected that way of life. Right. She, she kept her theater friends. She wasn't going to turn her back on them, and she made them part of the court, and many of them did marry into the aristocracy. Her sister, for instance, married an uh, up-and-coming general. And so she was kind of um, whitewashing the whole thing and giving them all a leg up, too, not just herself. So what would you like readers to take away from your novel? Well, let's see. I would say that it shows how two nobodies from nowhere can still rise to the pinnacle of power, just, well, not just, but by virtue of talent and determination, that, uh, uh, and the feminist angle, too, that Theodora wanted to, to be heard. She was a pantomime artist. She couldn't talk when she did her little rowdy, um, body uh, pantomimes in the circus. But she certainly got did discover her voice later in talking to Justinian and even to, you know, the whole empire when ambassadors would come, she would hold forth. But today we, we don't hear her voice in the official history, so I wanted to do that. Fascinating. What are you working on now? Are you writing something new? Well, I already have my next one in, in mind, but I'm still trying to finish up the digital extras for the enhanced ebook version of this novel. And that's going to come out in installments pretty soon. And what we have right now is a text-only version of the story, and I hope that's compelling enough to get readers. 
But with the enhanced e-book, the great virtue is it can include so much that printed books can't. It's going to have lots of images and maps, character profiles, each one with an illustration of what the character could have looked like, glossary timelines, and anything, you know, if there's something obscure that you're not aware of, you can hit that link and you'll get a little blurb which tells you a little mini uh, version of who the Ostrogoths were or whatever. And so it's going to fill in all those gaps. And I don't think people would read it as they're reading a novel because that would, you know, break the story and the spell of the plot. But if you want to go back after that to learn more about the period, it's going to be kind of like it offers total immersion, like having an encyclopedia at your fingertips, really, to, to find out much, much more about the period. So for this expanded format, I think, is going to be what the future of the book will be, not my book, but the book in general. <laughs> That's an interesting point. And actually, I'd like you to talk just a little bit about that, about how you came to publish. This is the first, you, you are the first author that I have interviewed whose book is only available as a digital book. Mm-hmm. Why, why did you decide to go that route? I always wanted it to be an ebook, just so I could do this. Because right now I do read books online and, uh, well, not online, my iPad, but um it's, it's blank text on a ba- background, you know, a white background, and it just seemed like it could be so much more. If you have a background which has some kind of image or colors, it could, you know, set the stage. It could be evocative of the atmosphere or what the character's feeling at that time. And that was what I thought of it. And then Ryan Morrison, the, the publisher of Erudition Digital, had uh, even more ideas. And so he, for, for us together now, it seems like it's a mosaic. It's going to be composed of all these little pieces and that separately they may not, you know, cohere, but it will present eventually a very complex and deep and picture with great breadth. And they're all different shades and colors and textures and sizes of these little images, little pictures to make the final mosaic. So I, I do think it's, it's pretty exciting for the future. That's great. So I should mention that the book has its own website, uh, which is www.theeagleandtheswan, as one word, .com. And will it be announced there when the uh, the enhanced version becomes available? Uh, yes, they will announce it, I'm sure, on the website for the Readers Club, right? And is there a newsletter or is there something that people can sign up for? I'm sorry? Is there a newsletter that people can sign oh, yes. up for? Right. If you sign up for the Reader's Club, they will send you announcements of whatever's happening with the book. Okay, great. So people can go there to find out more about it. Um, thank you so much for sharing your time with us today, Carol. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Oh, good. It's been great talking to you. I enjoyed it. Goodbye. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I am C.P. Leslie, and today I've been talking with Carol Strickland, author of The Eagle and the Swan. You can find out more about her at www.carolcstrickland.com. Like us on Facebook, search for New Books in Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at New Books Histfic. That's capital N-E-W, capital B-O-O-K-S, capital H-I-S-T, capital F-I-C. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can also visit my blog at http blogcplesleycom where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. My social media links are under the About Me tab. Goodbye until next month when I will host another conversation about new books in historical fiction.